For the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories. Today we are out in the San Fernando Valley at Emory Motorsports. We are speaking with Rod Emery. <clears throat> he is the founder of Emory Motorsports, some of the most impressive and performance-driven 356s you'll ever see. Uh, you can check him out at emorymotorsports.com and follow him on Instagram, instagram.com slash Rod Emery. Rod, thank you so much for having me out. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate you coming to see us. Uh, you have just a, a crazy Porsche history and a, and a multi-generational fabricating history, so I'm excited to talk to you about all that. We'll start with what kicked it off for you. What is your earliest automotive memory? Oh, boy. My earliest automotive memory was probably uh, behind the wheel of the very first Baja Bug that was ever built. Um, my grandfather and my father built the first Baja Bug in 1966. Um, at the time, my grandfather was uh, the body shop manager at Chick Iverson Volkswagen Porsche, and my dad was in the parts department. And uh, my dad always wanted a Myers Manx and couldn't afford one, so... Somebody came in with a crashed 57 oval window ragtop beetle and um, it was smashed front and rear and my dad took it back to the body shop and said, hey, dad, can we turn this thing into an off-road vehicle? So they rolled the fender lips and um, put a front beam in it and cranked it up and a reduction gearbox in the back and that was the start of the Baja Bug trend back so in the So there really wasn't anyone off-roading VWs outside of the Manx? Uh, they were off-roading them, but nobody had done a uh, what you now know as the Baja Bug, which is a cut nose, cut tail, rolled fenders. And so when my grandfather and father built that, then a good friend of theirs, um, Drino Miller, that worked for Myers Manx, he was actually one of their fiberglass guys, asked my dad if he could build a kit off of that design. And so that was the start of the, the trend, the Baja Bug. That still goes on today. There's literally hundreds of thousands yeah. of them around the world. And um, so... For me, my earliest childhood memory was um, uh, I was five years old and we were out at Pismo Beach because it, my dad built this so that he could take the family out, you know, to Ocotilla Wells or uh, Pismo Beach every, you know, Labor Day weekend or whatever. And I can remember when I was five years old, we were uh, out at Pismo Beach on Labor Day and my dad said, are you ready to drive this thing? And I said, absolutely. And um, put a pillow behind my back and I've got photos of me uh, ripping around Pismo Beach with paddle tires on right. the back of the Baja Bug. and. And that's when I really, that was the first time I'd ever driven a car. And I can remember, uh, you know, stalling it and then figuring out how to shift it. And and uh, I spent probably the next two days um, just driving that thing through the dunes up and down the beach. And and for me, it was, you know, the beginning of my love for cars. And you, so you come from just generations of Porsche and Volkswagen lovers. Yeah, really. And it actually goes back even deeper than that, um, back to, you know, the early customizing and hot rod days. Um, my grandfather, Neil Emery, was the founder and uh, partner of Valley Custom Shop, which was uh, really one of the, the, the top custom car shops in the San Fernando Valley. Um, you know, my grandfather grew up in, in um, North Hollywood and went to the service. And while he was in the service, he um, uh, ran the, the body shop at Alameda Military Base for all of the generals and, and uh, worked on a lot of their personal cars, but also repaired anything. And really honed his skills in, in body and paint and uh, fabrication in the service. And then as soon as he was um, out of the military after the war, he and his brother-in-law, Clayton Jensen, 
started Valley Custom Shop, which was off of Victory Place in uh, Burbank. And uh, that was the beginning of uh, my family really being in the you know custom car business. And was that the more American? Because you showed me you have a Ford out there. Was it American stuff they were customizing? It was. It was, uh, you know, my grandfather was really the pioneer of channeling and, and sectioning cars. You know, you had Barris and, and um, you know, Winfield and all these other guys that, you know, that, that loved to chop stuff. And uh, my grandfather, he, he liked to chop, you know, Fords and Chevys, but he really liked to section and channel them. And, you know, that's when you take the body and channel it over the frame and drop it down and or section it um he built uh, a couple of very you know uh, uh you know popular or still to this day um cars that that everybody knows there was the ron dunn 50 ford business coupe which uh was sectioned uh four inches and and uh another uh car that was uh, known as the polynesian that was a 50 oldsmobile that was sectioned five inches and uh one of the, the cars that he did uh, in 1949 was for um, uh, the writer and, and uh, 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 Dean Batchelor, who's a good friend of his. Dean came to my grandfather and Alex Exidius, Alex Exidius uh, SoCal Speed yep. Shop, um, and he had Alex Exidius build uh, a chassis and running gear, and my grandfather build an envelope-bodied aluminum uh, streamliner. Because, so the belly uh, tanker. Uh, it was... It was actually the the SoCal Streamliner, which was right after the belly tank. Oh, okay. Um, so it was an envelope-bodied car, which meant it covered the wheels, and it was the first hot rod over 200 miles an hour. Wow. Um, so, uh, and Dean Batchelor, uh, it was his concept, and uh, uh, my grandfather built the aluminum body for it, and they ended up breaking the record, and then uh, it ended up getting totaled, but... Um, As most they, of those cars went, did. They went over 200 miles an hour. And, and the reason Dean came to my dad, my grandfather to do that was just because, you know, my grandfather was a master, uh, you know, craftsman and, and coach builder and customizer. So my grandfather operated his shop, Valley Custom Shop, from 1948 to 1961, roughly. And in, in about 1961, uh, a friend of his, Chick Iverson, that had a used car lot, uh, in in the valley here had just purchased the Porsche Volkswagen dealership in Newport Beach and um, he asked my grandfather to come down and run the body shop in the early 60s and so that was really when my family transitioned from it was the foray into Porsches yeah it was when they transitioned from uh, you know traditional custom cars hot rods to Porsches and it had to have been those a, a pretty major change you know he's dealing with smaller cars more complex parts um, did would did he like it? I mean, you don't you don't picture an old hot rod guy to get excited about a three fifty six. Well, I think you know, in the forties and fifties, you know, you're you're talking about cars that were a lot thicker bodied that you know you could do a lot of work to them and and really change the look of them drastically. Like you know, he did a lot of thirty nine and forty Fords where he'd section them or pancake the hood or raise the fenders. And but then as you as the cars you know, later on, like into the late fifties and early sixties, you look at the trend of cars and the cars started getting thinner in the bodies and, and also custom car building was different in the sixties than it was in the forties and fifties. It was more, you know, paint work and, and custom paint work as opposed to, you know, heavy body customizing. And, you know, he had done that for, you know, about 20 years and he was ready for a little bit of a change. And the Porsche was something that he had worked on a few Porsches, uh, you know, that came to Valley Custom Shop, and he was intrigued by him because here's a car that's unibody. The nose and tail don't just come off, and so they're tricky, and you've got to do a lot of work to really get And was right. it mostly just 
repairs or was he when did he get into hey let's customize these and kind of hot rod these cars well my grandfather really uh from that point was primarily was primarily doing um you know repairs so cars would come in that you know it just rear-ended somebody and and so at the body shop at chick iverson he was doing mostly repair stuff um and it was really my father and myself that got into really customizing the the porsche 356s and 911s so when did the in the whole outlaw of it start so my dad was the parts manager at chick iverson volkswagen porsche and then in the early 70s he he and chick partnered together to start uh, uh, porsche parts obsolete which was all of the uh, distributor obsolescence. So they were buying all of Porsche's extra parts that they couldn't store in the warehouses. And so in about 74, my dad officially opened Porsche parts obsolete. And so my dad's always been in the parts business. He's not, he's not a, a craftsman like my grandfather was. He doesn't, uh, you know, weld, but he's got an amazing design eye. And, um, so growing up myself, uh, you know, in that environment, what happened was, uh, my grandfather, uh, you know, was was at the body shop, and my dad started Porsche Parts Obsolete. And in the back of Porsche Parts Obsolete, my dad had a bay that was uh, kind of a service bay. We'd take apart cars, and as a kid, I was in there with my dad, and we were taking a 356 and uh, drilling holes and putting fog lights and putting hood straps on them and lowering them. And and so um, I can remember as early as being 10 years old, you know, mid 80s. Uh, in the back of the shop, helping my dad, you know, set the camber on the rear end of a car and getting it lower. And now, where did that come from? Though, did that come from looking at the old race cars? Did it just come from it, just the aesthetic of it would look better like this? Where was the inspiration behind that? I think a little bit of both, you know, because uh, you know the us, you know, the Emerys, we weren't the first ones to customize and lower Porsches and do all of that, uh, but we were. You know, because of our hot rod background and our roots, we were always drawn to, you know, lower cars and kind of changing the look and changing the aesthetic. And and uh, so my dad and I would take these 356s and we'd change them to look a little bit more rally inspired. And, um, you know, we'd lower them and we'd put fog lights on them and louver deck lids. And what happened was people were coming to the shop that were my dad's parts customers and they're all restoring cars to full concourse you know, buying parts from them and restoring them to full concord. But yet in the back of my dad's parts shop, we were, you know, lowering them and chopping them up and having it, some fun. It definitely and, wasn't what people picture today and what's cool or in vogue today was probably very much the opposite. You probably were upsetting the purest Porsche world. Absolutely. And that's where the term outlaws came from, because what happened was all of my dad's customers and everybody that was restoring cars, they'd come to our shop and they'd be like, oh man, what are you guys doing? You're you guys are outlaws. Yeah. Well, that stuck. And what happened was this was, uh, you know, the late 80s. And, you know, I was restoring a 1953 coupe, which was my first car. I was 14 years old. And, you know, I lowered it and I backdated it. I backdated a 53 to make it look like a 52. I put early body bumpers on it and split windshield and, and uh, lowered it and polished the drums and uh, put wider wheels on it and hand-painted number 80 on the side and hand-painted Pegasus horses. And people were like, oh, you know, you're never going to be accepted at the car shows. And my dad and I were like, who cares? You know, we're building them the way that we you're want. We're building them for you. Right. And so a friend of ours that was a jeweler made a little badge for us that said 356 Outlaws. And that was, wow. the, that was the beginning of, uh, we put that on my car and we put it on the uh, right-hand drive 65 car that we built for my dad. And that was the beginning of that term Outlaws as it's associated with Porsches. 
again, we weren't the first ones to customize a Porsche, mm-hmm. but when it came to the term outlaws, it originated from that badge we started. It was coined started. because of you. Yeah. So growing up, when did you, I, I imagine you, you come from the one family where you said, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer. They'd go, well, what are you nuts? You need to work on cars. <laughs> um, but did you want to be, work on cars and fabricate your whole life? Well, I grew up wanting to be a race car driver and racing. And uh, I raced uh, four wheel, three and four wheel ATVs when I was eight, nine, ten, twelve years old, and then I started racing the Mickey Thompson off road series when I was uh, fourteen, and then transitioned into a little single seater buggy. And so for me, my path was that I wanted to be a, a race car driver. Mm-hmm. And I also worked on a. I was uh, when I was thirteen years old. I was the left side mechanic on a nostalgia top fuel dragster, and then did one year as a left side engine mechanic on a uh, NHRA top fuel dragster. So. Racing was really what inspired and what drove me. So I thought, you know, ultimately that's what I want to do. I want to figure out a way to get sponsors and be a race car driver. Well, when I was 16, I finished building my car and I went and got my um, my SCCA license and then did started doing some vintage racing when I was 16. And I quickly realized that, you know, my parents didn't have deep pockets. They weren't going to be able it's to help me. It's a hard business to get into. Yeah. I mean, I was racing against... You know, in the Mickey Thompson off-road series, uh, you know, a couple of, of guys that I hung out with and raced with were Casey Mears and, and Jimmy Johnson. We were we all grew up racing that series together, mm-hmm. and and uh, they fortunately were able to find sponsors and and uh, keep that you know alive and keep going. For me, I had to figure out how can I continue to to go racing and how can I continue to do what I love to do. Well, what ended up happening was I was racing my little '53 coupe and went to Portland, to the Portland Historics, and a gentleman came up to me, and and uh, I was racing that car, and he says, oh, I'd love to be a race car driver. I'd love to, you know, try this. And I said, well, you know, we can build you a car, and, you know, I can teach you how to race. And one thing led to another, and my passion for racing really turned into the, you know, the spark that, that I built my business on, because in the early days, uh, dating back to like 92, 93, I was building vintage race cars for people, teaching them how to go racing. And then and then later on, by about 98, I was transporting multiple cars to the track and providing trackside support and service and, and building vintage race cars for people. And I mean, for about 10, 12 years, I had three semi-trucks with five-car capacity so, and, and all that. So. How did you then – how does it sort of transform? Because now – I mean, and I could be wrong, you – it it seems like you're you're doing more of the the resto mod and the street mod or the they're they're less res, uh, race car more road car but they're absolute works of art. So when did you sort of get this aha moment of I can build these these Emery one off? I want people to not just buy a Porsche. I want them to buy my Porsche, my work. Well, really, if you look back at, you know, all the way back into about 88, 89, when I was building my first car, I was trying to get as much performance out of a 356 as I could and continue to build that product and really develop a 356. And then, you know, racing and and taking um, all of what I knew about building cars and the stuff I'd learned from my father and grandfather, you know, I was taking these guys racing all over the country. And what happened was I was building cars that they were enjoying on the track. And then they said, hey, you know, I had a couple of them that said, hey, I, I, you know, you've, you've done such an amazing job building a beautiful car for me to drive on the track and I'm running at the front. Can you build me a car that I can drive on the street that has this type of performance and, and style? So in 1998, um, I built my first what I call Emory Special, 
which is a car where I completely like kind of redesigned the styling of the car by, you know, leaning the nose back, leaning the windshield back, rolling the rockers, doing a lot of the old kind of custom tricks that my grandfather used to do on the hot rods, but applying them to a Porsche. And then stuffed 200 horsepower in it and used big aluminum, like IRS rear trailing arms and big Brembo brakes. So what happened was I continued to build vintage race cars for people, but they saw the cars that I was building for the street and they said, I would love that. And um, So, you know, the business just continued on and, and I continued to evolve and develop those 356s. And, um, you know, really when things I think changed uh, and I transitioned away from building as many race cars and uh, started building more, you know, high-end, um, performance-oriented, bespoke 356s. It was about 2007, 2008 when uh, the whole, you know, kind of economic, you know, world changed for everybody. Yeah. And a lot of people decided racing wasn't maybe in their cards at the moment. And so I took that opportunity as a kind of a sign that maybe I should uh, focus more on, instead of, you know, building race cars and taking people racing, just focus on building street cars and and instead of quantity just focus on quality and and uh you know smaller numbers and uh, that's where we're at today so since about 2007 uh we've been you know does really doing more hot rod 356s or what we call outlaw 356s um, and, and what i find interesting about about you and it seems to be there's this i don't know san fernando valley uh boom i mean it's like uh if there's Silicon Valley, this is, you know, Motor Valley or, you know, or, or, or Silicon Grease Valley, um, you know, of the U's and the Rob Dickinson's and Singer's and Jonathan Ward's. And, and there's this industry, this booming industry of high-end, high-quality um, automobiles. And what I, I think is sort of neat about yours is, and, and no, nothing against you know, the singers and the icons of the world, it's that's the car they built. And if you'd like one, they'd build you one. You sit down with the owner or the potential customer and kind of go, all right, what, what are we doing here? Is that correct? Yeah. You know, for what, the most so, part. So take us sort of the process because no two are really alike. Um, take us through the whole process of, you know, I'm coming in to buy a, an Emory outlaw. What, you know, from idea to, to finish. Yeah, I mean, well, to answer or to to comment on what you said about the, you know, San Fernando Valley being the Silicon Valley of of automotive, it really always has been. If you look back in the '40s and '50s and '60s, this is where all the customizers were. You look and just down the street, we've got GM Design Center, we've got Audi, uh, Volkswagen over by the Santa Monica Airport. It's just Southern California and the San Fernando Valley has just always been that that kind of place that um, that that the real, you know, creative trendsetters, I think is a good way to put it, you know, seem to, to be because you have the infrastructure and you have the craftsmen around you to support it and the suppliers and, and the events. And so for me being in San Fernando Valley, the amazing part is that, um, this is where my grandfather was, you know, 70 years ago and doing similar things that I'm doing now. And, um, it, it's just the right place for me. And, um, when a customer comes to me and wants to build a car, um, you know, we, you know, of course, I'm always going to take all of their ideas and thoughts into consideration and, and build a car that's going to be everything they want. But I do have certain standards and certain things that uh, clearly I won't, 
I won't do on cars. And, and so, um, you know, if you, what have you been asked to do that you just went, that's not me. That's not my work. Yeah. You know, um, obviously colors are, are always a big thing to me. You know, I don't like real crazy paint. I like things to, to be a little bit more subtle. Um, and, and, you know, not that I won't paint a car red, but I don't want any one particular item on the car to jump out and stand out. I like everything to look almost OEM as if Porsche would have built it back in the day had they had the parts and components. And, and so every piece on it needs to be very traditional Porsche feeling. Um, doesn't mean we don't make it, but it, it just has to look that way. But things that, you know, I, I don't really like doing, um, uh, you know, nothing in real specific, but, you know, I, I stay away from using, you know, real shiny, you know, uh, steel braided lines in the engine compartments or, you know, bright ignition boxes and, you know, just components, things like that. Um, and, you know, if somebody said, Hey Rod, will you take a 356 and just nail the top and chop it? Really? I, I won't do it. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to jeopardize the drivability and, and, you know, to, to just get some look. Um, but you know, if you wanted a car and you came to me and you said, Rod, you know, this is really what I want. What I first try to do is figure out how you're going to use it. And, you know, is it going to be a car that you drive all the time? Is it going to be a car that you're going to possibly take to the track sometimes? And uh, I try to get a feel for what your other cars are or what you've had in the past and then sit down and, and start to tailor, a, a, you know, a build outline. Um, and uh, and then from there, once we figure out roughly what we want to do, then I go and source the donor car, um, which I have access to a lot of cars. People call me all the time with cars for sale. And, um, you know, figure out what model we're going to use because we're going to build a car from, you know, uh, everything from an early uh, 50, 51, 356 all the way up to a 65. Occasionally we do 911s. And how much of that original metal do you need? Um, you know, obviously we could we could remake every piece of the car if we needed to. Mm -hmm. But I try to use as much of a 356 as, or, or as much of a Porsche as we can because at the end of the day, I want this to be a Porsche. I don't, you know, I don't build replicas. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want the car to be, you know, true to it, you know, its title and, and be an authentic original 356 or 911. Um, but given the fact that these cars have been through a lot of elements, you know, and, and weather throughout the years and, and uh, some of them very poorly taken care of, they all have rust issues. They all have structural issues or they've been in accidents. So. You know, we're always going to do the floors. We're always going to do the longitudinal areas and the battery box. Um, and when we do that, we structurally um, make everything stronger so that it's got more torsional rigidity and, and all that. So, you know, we can remake everything, but we try to have as much, you know, as decent a car as possible to start with. And from, from beginning to delivery, what is sort of that timeline it would take? Because these can't be, you know, stamped out in a month or two, I assume. No, I mean, it's the cars that we build range from 12 to 18 months to build. It's just there's no way to shorten Which the is time. actually seems pretty quick because you'll hear sometimes two years, three years. You'll hear hot rod guys five years on a car. Yeah. Um, now, are you, you got to be. Do you, there, there's got to be a backlog. I assume I can come in there today. Is. Yeah, there is. And, and we, we try to start like one new car a month, mm -hmm. um, is approximately what we do. And, and, uh, so that means that, uh, you know, every month we've got one that's finishing and one that's starting. And, um, yeah, I mean, right now we're, we're about, you know, if you came in today and said, Hey, let's build a car, uh, you'd be on a waiting list that would, uh, be sometime early next year that we would start. And so then, a couple of years. 
Yeah, by the time you took delivery, it it'd be yeah. I I, be, I spoke with a two years, I yeah. spoke with a collector who could not speak high enough of your work, and uh, uh, just was going on and on about it. it's it's the ultimate Porsche. He, he's is his dream car to own, and I said, well, what's stopping you? Why don't you go get one? He goes, I'm ADD. He yeah. goes, I want it now. He says, I don't want to wait. It's it's a couple of years. I goes, I want the car now. I don't want to wait. And that really, you know, I mean, that is always an issue. There's because we live in a society where it's instant gratification. You know, people, you know, I mean, used to be we'd take a picture with a camera and we'd take it down and two weeks later we'd get, pick up our film and it was done. Now we take a picture and we can send it anywhere in the world in, in three seconds. And so we've been trained and, and, you know, that everything happens immediately. We watch these car shows on TV and you know, a car gets rebuilt and redone in 15 days. And the reality is to do a car right, it's 12 to 18 months. And, and uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we've got 10 guys in the shop and we're banging away all day long, but we can only do And, it so and why is it the, the 356 over the 911? Because the 911 is, is the car. Um, and you guys, you do some 911 work, but, uh, and you go on your website, you've seen, you've, you've worked on 935s, you've, you know, you've worked on Targas, all these sorts of different cars, but it's still the the three fifty six is what you're known for. So, what is it about that car that you want to put your work into over a standard nine eleven? Well, you know, nine elevens are cars that have continued to evolve from you know nineteen sixty four and you know even today. Uh, you know, they're just a continual car. Where the three fifty six stopped the evolution in sixty five. That's when Porsche stopped developing that car. And so I just kind of find it as my life work to take the 356 and just continue to carry it on and and uh, keep making it better and better and um, you know it's a it's a shape and a design and a car that I don't care if you're 14 years old or 94 years old people smile they appreciate them I mean you look at the nose of the car and you know it just has that natural smile look it's just a it's a great car but originally they drove like a Volkswagen and for me I like to take that 356 and give everybody that feel and look of that car that they love so much but give it more you know modern driving experience where you can actually get in it and drive it from here to San Francisco and enjoy the drive and have plenty of power and, and so you we want to make it the best of all worlds yeah and you were showing me that you're taking now modern 911 or modernish 962 uh, or 964. 964. 964. Uh, there's too many Porsche numbers to start with nines. <laughs> uh, 964, I, I wouldn't even go, just chassis or just bottom ends, and you're converting them into the 356s now for just sort of that ultimate modern drivability. Yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, I got a request from uh, a guy that he wanted an all-wheel drive 356. And, sure, uh, makes perfect sense. Yeah, and he and he he owns a a real high end titanium bicycle company on the East Coast, independent fabrication, and and he says, Rod, he goes, I love your cars. He goes, I have a new GT3 RS, you know, but it just doesn't have the charm of a 356. And he says, you know, can you build one that I can strap my mountain bikes to and you know take them up on the logging roads and enjoy you know it there or take it to the track and drive it on the street. And, I just kind of want the best of both worlds, 356. And I said, sure, I can do it. You know, nobody's ever done it before, but I've got some ideas. I've always wanted to do it. And so what I did is I digitized a 356 chassis. So I, we have a ferro arm scanner with a laser so I can scan the thing, turn that into a 3D model. And then I took a 964 chassis and turned that into a 3D model and then digitally looked at the intersection points, like where the chassis would merge so that I could predetermine where I needed to cut and how big of a bridge I'd have to make to make mm -hmm. it look like it was something Porsche did. 
and uh, the project began once we started. So they weren't that different? Well, uh, Porsche has always built on their design. They never, like, take a clean piece of paper and throw you know, and go from scratch. And so, um, you know, just the way that Porsche thought process has always been, it's always allowed me to mix and match parts. I mean, Yeah, it's the ultimate evolution. It, it is, you know, and people always ask me, you know, Rod, where do you get some of these crazy ideas? Well, when my friends were at home playing with Tinker Toys and Lincoln Logs, I was in my dad's shop mixing up Porsche parts, and I don't see any Porsche part that doesn't have a way that I can make it fit another Porsche. Everything from, you know, the first Emory Special I built, I put 944 aluminum trailing arms in the rear. Well, that was a front-engine Porsche, but yet I used the rear suspension on a rear-engine Porsche, you know, so... Uh, but, you know, what I was able to do on this all-wheel drive car is take the front suspension, the tunnel, the rear suspension area, and graft it in. Now, there's a wheelbase dimension that had to be adjusted because the 964 is 170 millimeters sh- longer than a 356. But I was able to do the rest of the packaging inside the 356 body and, and just slightly swell the, the rear quarter panels so that you can't even detect that it was done and then build some special wheels for it. But... um all in all, it's a, it's going to be an amazing package. It'll be the first all-wheel drive 356 with all Porsche components. Now, they're Porsche components from a bunch of different Porsches, but you know the front differential is from a 2002 996 twin turbo. The transmission is from uh, a 90s 964, uh, and then the engine is one of the engines that we put in these cars that's two-thirds of a 911. So instead of having a six-cylinder air-cooled overhead cam engine, we take all the internal components from a 3.6 liter and we package them in a new case and new crank and cams that ends up allowing us to have a four-cylinder 911 based engine uh, which helps our weight balance and everything else in the cars it's just incredible to hear that everything you're working on so it's you know it's it's hot rods it's outlaws it's it's whatever you call them but it's really it's having your cake and eating it too i mean it sounds like you're just building these cars that have that vintage feel and charm to them but they're gonna drive the pants off almost i assume perform on a level of almost any modern 911 if not better because of just weight they really do you know you figure these cars um weigh between 1850 and 2050 pounds when they're done and we get um 100 you know 185 to 200 horsepower and and they're just you know it ends up being such a great driving package but we do a lot of things to make all that package work. We don't just put, you know, a, a 200 horsepower engine in the back of a 356. You know, we you got strength- some balance to it. Yeah, we strengthen the chassis. I, I use a 911 five-speed transmission, and I actually C-notch the nose cone of the transmission and move it forward so I can adjust the weight balance on the car. We build special aluminum trailing or uh, steel trailing arms for the back that. Uh, rather than these cars being Volkswagen type rear suspension swing axle, they're now IRS. So, and then um, originally they had drum brakes, and so we put a you know nice four piston uh, vented rotor you know braking system on it, and now it's all disc brakes and uh, just a lot of things that you know a lot of little steps that add up to a really great driving package in the end. Well, Rod, thank you so much for having me out to your shop. It, it was an absolute blast getting to know you and see the cars you guys are working on. If anybody wants to check out Rod's work, uh, follow him on Instagram, at Rod Emery. And if you want to order one, get ready to 
to have a, you know, be Rod's friend for the next few years, calling him up. You can visit emerymotorsports.com. Thank you for everybody who keeps listening. We have new episodes every Tuesday on iTunes and peterson.org. If you like what you hear, share it with a friend and uh, go on to iTunes. Give us a good rating and review. Rod, thank you so much for having me out. Hey, thank you so much. 